I'm here with Christopher Newhouse of GSR. Chris, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Greg? Doing good. Super excited to have you on the podcast. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about the background of GSR and maybe your background as well as your sort of career in trading and, and how you wound up at GSR. Sure, sure. So GSR, we're a market maker and liquidity provider for altcoins, spot market options, pretty much the whole nine yards. Uh, we started out in 2013 with an office in Hong Kong, Singapore. We have a global presence uh, worldwide now. We have offices in New York, London, Zug, as well as Singapore. And then, like I said, we cover a lot of pretty much an ecosystem partner, partnering with tokens to help them launch their projects. Um, and then quoting for spot and options as well. Bitcoin, Ethereum, the whole nine yards, altcoins, that's definitely our specialty. That's super interesting. So did GRSR have a presence in traditional finance before, or do you guys set up this whole op operation specifically for crypto? It was set up specifically for crypto. Our founders have the background, just like everyone else in traditional finance and felt like crypto was going to be kind of the next wave. Um, so they kind of started with their traditional finance backgrounds. I think it was mainly in oil and commodities and then pivoted that market experience over to the crypto markets. That makes a lot of sense. And, and just to make sure that this rumor I heard is not true, GSR does not stand for Goldman Sachs refugees. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Love it. So how about yourself, Chris? Maybe you could touch on sort of your trading career. I know that you recently joined GSR and spent some time at Genesis Trading as well. Uh, maybe we could t start there. Sure. Yeah, I'll cover my, I guess, uh, my university background and then go to my professional background as well, right? So I started out as Georgia Tech as a biology major, concentration in business. I was the founder of our quantitative trading club, which has recently announced a partnership with Citadel. I was the co-founder of our blockchain club, which recently had a massively successful Web3 conference in Atlanta with a variety of industry leaders as speakers. And I was the head of research on our and founding executive member for our venture capital club that has a small fund for angel investing in the space, whether that be Web3 or more so traditional markets as well in technology. Got interested in trading initially in 2017 during the ICO bubble. Ended up trying to, you know, day trade on Coinbase instead of study for my finals. Um, so looking back, I, I'd say that I regret the impact it had on my grades during that semester. But I guess knowing where I'm at today, I'd say it was definitely an experience I'm thankful for. I had a huge trade on Ripple, bought it at like three cents, sold it around three dollars, hundred X. And then I kind of took a break for two years because like, I never really thought I was going to hit something like that again. I'm pretty impatient, you know, looking for something fast paced rather than buy and hold for years. Downloaded Robinhood and discovered options in 2019. Realized, oh, wait a second. This is a product that can really have some crazy returns as well. Had a decent bit of money saved up from building computers on campus and boosting accounts so, uh, on like video games. So I would play like Counter-Strike and some of the real-time strategy games. And like I was pretty good at them. So I'd level those accounts up and sell them for like a couple hundred dollars each. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, got, I got pretty addicted to the markets. Started trading during class, reading as many books as I could, studying options theory. Everything I knew was self-taught, right? I was a biology major. But I think the biggest thing that accelerated my learning curve was trading during COVID, right? So when you experience an event like that, I feel like the things you learn in a day are equivalent to the things you'd learn over a week or over a month of like a low volatility trading environment, right? So when it comes to lessons like understanding liquidity and execution, how volatility comes into play with wingy options, IV crush after earnings, I definitely experienced that a lot, kind of learning uh, you know, through there. Uh, I had a couple big wins, big losses. I'm not going to say it was anything special. I was pretty much just long, naked calls and puts, honestly, not delta hedging anything. Occasionally, I'd do some spreads to lower my cost of entry, stuff like that. Not really super quantitative, but it really made me realize, hey, I enjoy the markets. I enjoy learning about this, and I definitely wanted to do something professionally. Um, but I knew if I was going to do something professionally like this, it meant you know no more YOLOing into out-of-the-money Tesla calls expiring in a week. 
And I kind of started seeking out my first inter- internship and really buckling down and learning more about volatility trading and what market makers actually do. Uh, to cover some of my professional career, so I started out as an intern at Genesis Trading under Josh Lem and Ben Musa. You know, both of those were previous guests here on the Amber Data podcast, and they incredible mentors, uh, not only for options and derivatives, but mainly for crypto as well, right? So they had helped me build up like a very solid foundation into understanding how a sell-side desk works um, regarding position management, pricing, broker relationships, crypto-native things like the perpetual futures and DeFi. And, you know, I can say for a fact, I wouldn't be here without that internship and definitely not here um, without their help, right? So fast forward to the end of the summer, I ended up being given the opportunity to intern until I finished university. So I stayed on the desk as a research intern under Noel HSN, focusing on trading and derivative aspects of research. Ended up talking to a few places before I ended up with an offer joining GSR as an OTC trader, focusing on spot and derivative markets. I'm also a contributor to Paradigm and soon hopefully we'll be contributing to Derivates Insights as well. That's fantastic, Chris. I mean, that's that's quite a story and a journey. I want to just kind of rewind a little bit and touch on a couple of points. So you mentioned that you started really trading options during the COVID crisis, where basically we saw VIX go up to the 80 handle, and you were following sort of the kind of the Robinhood crowd. Were you looking at Wall Street bets and sort of what people were trading in, in those sectors of the world as well? I was looking at it. That, that, it, was, it was definitely a very active community of traders. So I was definitely looking at it, but I was mainly kind of, you know, I was following stock twits, looking at earnings reports, kind of just seeing what was going to be the, the next biggest move. I saw things uh, across a variety of markets, whether that be the negative oil markets, equities, mm-hmm. and one of my biggest trades I uh, was one of the uh, kind of bond markets as well. Uh, ETF though, uh, trading HYG. Yeah. That's super interesting. Now, so let's say there's a New York trader out there who's listening you know, what, what kind of lessons would you tell yourself uh, if, if today, if you could talk to yourself in the past uh, going through that? Is there some lessons that stuck out? Yeah, 100%. The biggest lesson that I've learned throughout all of this is that sometimes the best trade is no trade at all. You don't always need to have a position on. And I definitely was always trying to have a position on back then. I was trying to make my own opportunities instead of trying to find the opportunities and take advantage of them myself, right? So the absolute worst thing I could do is when you're bored and you try and force something that's not positive, expected value, you know, or probabilistically not going to make you a lot of money over the long term. So biggest lesson, 100% is it's okay to not have a position on. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so when you're trading on Robinhood and making your way into crypto space, so what kind of like, you know, I your XRP trade sounds amazing. What kind of drew your interest into the crypto side of things as opposed to traditional options on equities? Yeah, so mainly the big thing that got me interested in crypto for like an institutional, like a career path or something like that is, you know, biggest thing about me, very entrepreneurial personality. I don't like structure. I definitely was not thinking about joining a bank, waiting, you know, six, eight years, become a VP, have a huge hierarchy where I wasn't really going to have the opportunity to add value and make an impact early on. So I never really gave sales and trading at a traditional bank like any, any sort of thought. And I never really thought twice at all about investment banking. Um, I went to crypto because it felt like the first asset class where the experts had like at most two to three years of some sort of institutional crypto experience. I feel like a lot of people got in during the 2017 ICO bubble. Um, and those people who got in in 2013, they're, they're just way ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. But it was something that I felt like I could dedicate time to and immediately see results and see opportunities kind of pop up as well. So that's 100% why I went to crypto as a new asset class. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, maybe if you could just kind of give us a brief overview of the differences of, you know, trading an OTC desk at GSR or like you were doing at Genesis with Josh and, and Ben Musa. 
maybe you could just kind of touch on a quick difference there versus you know doing it on your own as like a Robin Hood trader. Yeah, yeah. I guess the biggest thing is that you're fo- you're you're kind of an institutional trader, right? So there's a lot more hedging. There's a lot more kind of insight into the flow you're gathering. Like when you're a retail trader, you don't really have access to all this institutional flow where the big money or the smart money is. Mm-hmm. And kind of being able to see that as an OTC trader, first of all, that's something very valuable when it comes to, I don't know, either delta hedging your positions or kind of taking your own view on the market. But also, I guess one of the biggest things that you think about as an OTC trader versus like a retail trader, you know, trading a couple hundred dollars is the biggest thing I kind of think about now is liquidity. Like if someone wants to place a massive block trade, I need to make sure that the market can first of all handle that. And if it can't, I really need to make sure that I kind of skew my market and make sure that I'm taking that into account whenever I'm having to hedge these products off. And then also another big thing about the OTC markets is you're kind of pairing off trades and matching up against other counterparties as well to figure out where you can offlay the risk. I, I think from an institutional perspective and market makers as well, it's more so of a game of how you manage your risk and how you position yourself with the positions that you're given rather than, you know, being a taker as a retail mm-hmm. trader and just, you know, buying a bunch of out of the money calls or something like that. I'd say that's the biggest difference between an institutional trading mindset rather than someone, a retail trader trading a couple hundred dollars with options. That's interesting. So, so less of taking a, a direction on the market or like a thought or a bias and more about warehousing inventory in a smart uh, thought out way or, Exactly. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely one of the the biggest things. And we still can take on some sort of view. We're always, you know, we always have to have a view because we're given the positions, we're actively quoting, we're actively quoting during kind of the crash as well. So always have to have a view on the market. But it's definitely more about how you manage that risk rather than going around taking, you know, tons of positions on. Yeah. So so right now, as as of this recording, we have some pretty fast markets. I mean, we just had uh, BlockFi announced that they're probably going to go bankrupt and FTX pretty much go down last week. And Genesis having some some issues, it's rumored. So how has GSR fared in this type of environment? Is this high vol environment good for you guys? Is it bad for you guys? Is it neutral? How do you think about it? Yeah, so specifically for us, it's it's been relatively neutral. Um, I guess it's also like in a high volatility environment, we can also kind of widen some of our quotes because some of our competitors aren't even quoting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the big things about GSR is we've stayed active throughout this entire environment. That's one of our strong suits is being able to quote some of these illiquid altcoins. Um, and that's definitely one of the big flows that we've seen is a lot of people kind of converting, you know, stable coins back into dollars and just things like that. Um, so that's definitely one of the biggest things I've seen. And in terms of the environment, like you said, there's a ton of stuff going on. Um, but yeah, we've kind of weathered the storm and been able to take advantage of a lot of that. So something you mentioned that's interesting is sort of the, the illiquid altcoins. So now, is that something you'll make a quote on? So let's say I have some altcoin I want to unload or some altcoin I want to buy. You guys can make two-way markets on these types of altcoins or are you really focused on big pairs, Bitcoin, Ethereum, stuff like that? I'd say that honestly, the altcoins and stuff like that, as long as there's some sort of market for it and we can kind of have like a very liquid delta hedge, we can definitely do something like that. Um, depends on the size as well. But I'd say the GSR strength is definitely in the altcoins just because our client nature, like a lot of our clients are a lot of the token insiders, a lot of the projects, et cetera. So that kind of gives us access to liquidity in the altcoins that a lot of people might not have access to in terms of token unlocks and then working with founders as well. That makes a lot of sense. And now something in traditional finance, and I'm wondering if it's similar for you guys. So in traditional finance, people will trade baskets of of individual stocks and then use the S&P 500 to sort of hedge it. When you guys are managing your inventory, and let's say you are trading altcoins for customers or warehousing altcoins, 
Do you guys hedge to say in in the ETH market to hedge your ERC twenty tokens, or is that something that's still still too indirect? Uh, no, that, that's actually something that we've done and we've done before, especially kind of that's actually one of the popular ways that we'll hedge some of these coins as well. So we'll kind of take a look at what's going on in the, in the Ethereum bull markets and kind of see the correlation to some of the altcoins, kind of do stuff like that. So, yeah, spot on. Awesome. And now something that's really interesting about your career is that you've seen two kind of crazy vol environments. One right. Well, more than two, considering Luna and three, three arrows back in June. But we've seen crypto vol environments that are quite volatile. I've seen at least three of those. And then you saw the, the pandemic crash of March 2020 and sort of that vol environment. How, you know, how, how has the crypto vol space kind of shifted throughout your career? Is there some stuff that, you know, maybe happened in 2020 that's very different now? Or, or how do you think about it? Yeah, so for 2020, I was mainly trading a lot of the equity derivatives and options. I honestly didn't even look at crypto. I was really getting into crypto whenever I had my internship at Genesis and right before then as well. So I got into crypto during a bull market and, you know, I watched it in 2020. But I'd say that the biggest difference between 2020 and now is this is, you know, a very systematic shift into kind of like risk management and what's happened in the market versus just an, a natural black swan event happening with a COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I think that honestly, this environment is probably a lot worse to kind of kind of go through and weather because this is something that was just a systematic thing that happened in crypto specifically. And I think one of the biggest differences here is a lot of institutional trust has been broken, especially with the events that are going on. Versus in 2020, I feel like institutions were just getting on board with crypto, ready to go into crypto at the end of 2021, things like that. I, I think that it's a, a whole different environment now. So a little bit more bearish of an environment now than I'd say in 2020, honestly, just thinking of the future of crypto. I mean, the technology is still there and it still exists, but institutions still have to be able to trust the space and, you know, trust market makers to provide, you know, quotes and things like that. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point, especially, you know, if we think about Genesis Trading, which was sort of the biggest broker for a long time, OTC broker. Now, you guys are sort of a competitor uh, in a lot of ways to, to Genesis Trading. Now, what kind, you know, what sort of sets you guys apart from, from, from those guys? I mean, it sounds like you guys have done a really good job managing your risk, warehousing your inventory, and are still able to quote uh, uh, markets right now. Is that true for all the other competitors or, or, you know, what's kind of that situation from your perspective? I'd say from what I've seen here, the biggest difference between GSR and some of the other market makers is our risk management. I, we don't take on massive positions. I, I mean, the biggest thing that separates us is we don't have a lending book. And a lot of these mm. failures have kind of been from lending and borrowing and GSR doesn't really have too much of an active, you know, market in that. So that's kind of kept us, you know, very safe. I mean, three hours capital Luna, we, we didn't have very much exposure to Luna at all. Um, and then three hours capital kind of a, a lending failure with Genesis as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the main thing is the lending book, but also we're pretty active in a lot of the altcoins. And I think that that space has a lot of edge, um, as well, because there's not many competitors who are actively quoting the kind of coins that we quote as well. That's- and we have great ways to monetize those. Yeah, that's super insightful. And now from your customer base, so is your customer base located worldwide? Is it one of those things that like a U.S. hedge fund manager can can work with you guys OTC or is it sort of closed off to overseas customers only? So 
It's definitely a, a kind of a regulatory environment that you have to navigate quite carefully. And we have multiple entities at GSR, so I'm pretty sure, you know, U.S. clients can definitely onboard and trade with us. It just depends on kind of the entities that they're trading out of and the entity that they're trading with whenever it comes to GSR, as well as some of the tokens that we'll trade for people. I know in New York, there's this green list of tokens that it's pretty extensive, but um, it kind of limits our customers in the U.S. to be able to trade those. But like I said, we have coverage worldwide to be able to trade a lot of other things as well. It's just U.S. traders just try not to touch that stuff. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And now we touched on some of the listed markets such as Darebit or like Paradigm, which is basically block trading on the listed screens. Now, do you guys sort of trade those markets as well? Do you make markets on Paradigm? Do you guys, you know, offload risk on screen on Darebit? Is that is that kind of sort of the venues that the GSR also works with? Yep. Yeah, we do both of those. We're, you know, relatively active on Paradigm. Usually whenever we have an axe or whenever we kind of want to match a trade off, we'll do some stuff on Paradigm. And then recently also, whenever liquidity kind of pulled back, we were seeing better quotes on, on screens on Darabit than on Paradigm recently with some of the OTC desks kind of backing off their quotes and things like that. So yeah, we use Paradigm and Darabit, yeah. Fantastic. And now there's, there's a little bit of an open question. I, I don't think people have started really doing this yet. I'm, I'm wondering on your opinion. So there's a lot of like potential relative vol trades. Some of the things that we're seeing right now in the equity space, we have Silvergate, which is one of the big crypto lenders and banks in the space. Um, that's kind of a high vol equity right now. Same thing with MicroStrategy, which is supposed to have sort of margin calls triggered at 13,500 Bitcoin. There's also Coinbase yep. itself where the bonds are trading 55 cents on a dollar. Now, do you guys see some sort of opportunity in, you know, relative vol, Bitcoin vol versus Coinbase vol? Is that something you guys have started to look at or is it, you know, too outside of the scope? It's a little bit too outside the scope. We definitely 100% keep it in mind for whenever we're quoting and kind of correlating stuff to, you know, the crypto markets as a whole. But we work specifically with crypto, right? So some of our clients will come in, you know, saying like, oh, do you see this opportunity in the equities markets? Is this kind of, you know, disjointed from what you're seeing in the crypto markets? We'll kind of talk about that. But yeah, we really mainly stick to a lot of the crypto trades. And it's interesting that you kind of bring up, you know, vault trades and things like that. Because literally, I think one or two days ago, there was a massive block. Like, I think it was a block buyer. Of it. it might have been a block seller, but it was um, call, it was call calendars for Ethereum. And it was the March vol versus the December vol. Mm. And I think that uh, that was a massive trade that went through and kind of added some kinks in the term structure. So, I, I mean, I guess one of the ideas I was thinking of is hey, if, if you, I think it was them selling the, the March X free 1.6K call for ETH and then them buying the 1.6K call December 30th for end of year. Um, so I guess that kind of, you know, pushed the curve down on the, uh, the March side of things. So if you want to, you know, relatively get some cheaper vol in the march wing I, I think that's kind of an interesting opportunity for a vol trade there is you know picking up any sort of youth vol but i i also am relatively you know i feel like there's a lot more opportunity for downside than upside in the near term especially heading into the end of the year with tax loss harvesting some of the macro events coming up i think just like you know early december there's you know cpi and fomc and then i also you know there's there's this overhanging genesis bankruptcy and stuff mm -hmm. like that we're in a really low liquidity environment as well right now heading into thanksgiving with the world cup going on and stuff like that so i think that there's definitely you know a lot of different ways that the market can play out can't really pick like a clear direction but honestly personally just my opinion is i'm leaning a little bit bearish especially kind of heading into the next couple of weeks in short-term environment yeah i'm right there with you is there <laughs> Uh, let's say, you know, do you guys follow the macro side of things as well when you make your opinions on sort of crypto and crypto fall? Or are you guys purely focused sort of in a, as a silo specifically on crypto? 
Uh, we're definitely keeping the macro environment 100% kind of in our view as well. I think if the FTX stuff didn't really go on, who knows? Maybe Ethereum could have been at 2K with a favorable CPI print, you know, right before then. Um, but yeah, we definitely keep the macro picture in, in our view as well whenever we kind of come up with how we want to hedge our portfolios and how we want to balance it and things like that. So definitely something we keep on the forefront. Honestly, I think it's a very macro-driven environment right now for a lot of risk assets. Um, so it's definitely something we have to take into account for crypto because it seems like crypto. Oh, honestly, recently, it seems like crypto is decoupled. So whenever there's upside in the equities markets, you know, crypto will kind of follow it. But it seems when, they, when there's downside in the equity markets, crypto kind of just nukes. So mm-hmm. like, it's definitely something to keep in mind of, especially the correlation between Bitcoin and Ethereum and kind of some of the S&P and NASDAQ futures and stuff like that. That makes a lot of sense. So for someone who's new to trading and, and maybe wants a career like yours, is there any books that you read along the way that you would say your favorite trading books? Yeah, for sure. I think, well, for me specifically, so I went right into crypto ball. So there's a lot of stuff that you can do on like the uh, learning about DeFi, learning about perpetual futures, what a funding rate is, et cetera. And then there's also the books. So I read, you know, Dynamic Hedging by Talib. And then I also read um, Options Pricing and Volatility by Natenberg. Mm-hmm. And then I read some books from Yuan Sinclair as well. So read as many books as possible. But the best way to learn is on the job. And that's definitely something that I really am, you know, uh, excited for at GSR because I was kind of being able to learn like right on the job, how to quote these things, how to price things, seeing how our risk is changing. A lot of scenario analysis analyses uh, for our options book and how it changes with like spot ball correlation and things like that. And a hundred percent, I feel like I learned more during my internship and then at GSR actively than I did from any sort of book. But I, I think understanding the options theory and things like that is great. And then being able to practically apply it and see kind of the outcome of your actions is definitely the biggest like next level for learning. That's a that's a great point. I remember when I was prop trading, having senior traders around that I can bounce ideas off of and see what they think has always been something that's invaluable. Do you feel the same thing now at GSR? You have some senior traders who are very experienced that you could say, hey, what do you think about this trade or stuff like that? Yep, 100%. You know, shout out to my mentor, Ember. He's here in the New York office with me. And then kind of whatever we're going through the graduate trading program, John Cole and Mike P, they're over in Europe. They kind of gave us an overview of exotic options. And then John has like 10 plus years of experience trading options as well. So gave me and the other graduate traders kind of a little bit more insight as well. Being able to kind of like turn around in your desk and ask questions is so valuable. So yeah. That is awesome. So kind of uh, just closing up here on a more personal note, so when you're not trading at GSR and you're not uh, slinging vols, so to speak, uh, what do you like to do for, for fun and, and kind of what do you do outside of work? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm very fortunate over here that GSR, we've got global coverage. And then second of all, we have two guys in California. So like the time zones are perfect, right? So the New York guys are always able to get out at like a very reasonable time. And then the California guys hold down the fort, see more team logs on. It's great, you know, great balance. Uh, always surprises people and, you know, rightfully so, but I am engaged uh, to my amazing fiance. She's working in patent law and we always still find time to be able to, you know, go with friends, have date nights, et cetera. Other things I do for fun, uh, weightlifting, powerlifting, you know, working out. And then, uh, like I said, playing video games. So uh, I was pretty good at those. And back in college, I was boosting accounts and selling them for extra money. Um, yeah. And then, uh, writing about crypto. I know, you know, I sound like a nerd, but I think I'm fortunate enough to be writing and working in a space that I really enjoy. So, you know, it's nice to sit down in a coffee shop, type out my thoughts on the derivatives landscape and keep learning, right? I'm pretty young, but I think it's a great opportunity to kind of learn as much as possible. Yeah. 
That that's awesome. I only laugh because I wish I was good at Counter Strike. I like totally <laughs> suck. <laughs> so it's good to hear that you're like very yeah. good at it and selling accounts. I'm amazed. So <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think that's very interesting. I think listeners would love to hear about your story and your journey. And-